I'm Corey, if anybody doesn't know me, and I'm so humbled and excited to be able to preach um, today God's Word as we get ready for the Christmas season, this Advent season, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we have decided to teach on the Incarnation, this wondrous mystery that God uh, took on human flesh and came. And in Luke 2, many of you heard this story where uh, Jesus of Nazareth is born. He's born to Mary and Joseph in a manger. He comes as a baby. Um, and it's a wondrous mystery that we get to celebrate, that the Savior, as he is called, that the King of Kings, that the long-awaited Messiah that was promised to Abraham, that was promised in Genesis 3, that would crush the serpent's head, that was promised to David, that from his lineage, the King that would reign forever and ever would come through his lineage. And then we see this take place. Um, and today, we're going to dive into this in a two-part. Uh, this week and next week, we're going to look at Jesus being fully God, Jesus being fully man, truly God and truly man. And last week, Pastor Dustin did a great job of, of addressing why. Like, why is this so important for us to understand this doctrine? That really is hard to understand for me, and I'm sure it's hard to understand for you. Um, but it's so important. It helps us to grow into our spiritual maturity, to understand what we truly believe to understand who Jesus really is, who God is, who he says he is, what his word says. It helps us to grow into spiritual maturity, spiritual dependence in our knowledge of who he is so that our heart can grow as we know him more. And then it also strengthens us. It gives us strength and boldness and confidence that as we grow in what this word says and what we know to be true and put our faith in, that we have confidence to profess that. Uh, boldness to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, especially as we come up to Christmas, knowing it is about him. It is not about me. It's not about gifts or about parties or about getting together. Those, those things are great. This is about Jesus Christ, God the Son taking on human flesh. It also leads us to glorify God, which is the chief end of man that has been said over the centuries that our purpose, we are created to worship. As human beings, we will worship stuff but we were created to worship our creator. We were created to worship God. And that is the most joyful, fulfilled life that I can have. And it is also what we are created um, to do, to glorify God. And none of this is possible. Understanding this is not possible without the power of the Holy Spirit drawing us in, giving us the ability to understand, growing us, sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus Christ himself. And so today we're gonna focus on the first half that Jesus is truly God. Jesus is truly God. And for us to, uh, to get to this, we have to start before the incarnation, before the birth of Christ. So turn in your Bibles uh, to John chapter 1. We'll be in four main passages of Scripture. We'll be in John 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, and Hebrews chapter 1 as we look as, at Jesus Christ, fully God. John chapter 1, we'll read the first three verses and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed His glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I am so humbled um, to be speaking the truth of your word. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to grow in the knowledge of who you are. Lord, I pray that you would help us 
to serve as you served, to humble ourselves, Jesus, the way you humbled yourself. And God, as David writes in Psalm 119, that with my whole heart I would seek you. So I, that's my prayer for myself today, that as I understand the incarnation, understand its weight, its gravity, its truth, that God would become a man to reconcile me back to himself, Lord, that you would help me to give everything to you. So Lord, grow us, hide me behind your word. Your word is truth, your word is power, and it has the power to change. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw us to yourself, make us more like you, and Lord, that you would save today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen. Jesus is truly God. Uh, there's four main things I want us to look at that John is pointing to us. Um, but to be honest, when we're talking about the incarnation and this whole entire truth, it is a brain stretcher, however you want to call that. It hurts my brain the longer I study it. Um, the more I've looked into it these last couple of weeks, it is hard for me to fathom that we can have Jesus fully God and fully man. And it's an incredible doctrine. And it reminds me of, if you're like me, when I was in college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, in high school, I was in a law magnet program that taught me I did not want to be a lawyer at all. Um, and so I get to college and I'm like, I'm good at math. Um, I guess, you know, engineering has math in it. I'll try that. There were some people in our church who were engineers. I'm like, I like that guy. I respect him. Maybe I'll do what he does. So I get there um, and then there's this class. It's called physics, college physics, not high school physics. High school physics was just video games and fun, and I kind of went sometimes my senior year, and it was fine. My teacher was awesome. Um, but we get there, and you do these principles and these things that, that make sense on paper, like you're, I don't know why we're figuring out, basically for baseball, how far a home run is. If you hit the ball at this speed, and it goes at this arc, and it's in the air for this time, and lands here, that's how far it went, and this is the angle, and all that fun stuff of physics. Um, if you're an engineer, I'm not making fun of you, I promise. Um, but I'm really, I was a good learner in, in school, not really a learner. I'm good at cramming. I have a great short-term memory, which is why Awana was easy for me. Sorry. Um, but it's true. I, I never really had to study or never really wanted to study uh, until like now, theology, I love studying. But I would, in physics, you would learn something in the classroom and then you had to go do labs. You had to prove what you learned like physically, like you had to do it and practice it. And I had this partner, praise the Lord for him. I remember him because he was smarter than me and I, we knew each other from high school. So I was like, you wanna be, you wanna be friends? You wanna hang out? Um, and so I'm really good at following directions. That's my personality. I grew up playing Legos. Legos, you get a box. This is what it's gonna look like. If you follow these steps one at a time, this will happen, we promise. And it happens every time. You always think they don't give you all the pieces, but they're always there. Um, and so I'm good at following directions. And I remember doing these labs and going through and doing step-by-step step and whatever physical thing you can do to prove what we were learning in there. And then I walk out of there after three hours and I'm, my eyes are wide open. I don't know what I just did. I know I think I passed the, passed the lab. I did it. And these things I know are true because people have proved them to be true, but I don't grasp it. That's how I feel when we're talking about the incarnation. Uh, honestly, it is so far above my mental capacity. It is so wondrous. It is so mysterious. And it leaves me, and I hope today it leaves you saying, praise God. Praise the Lord that I cannot fathom the one whom I worship. 
that he is so far above me and so smarter and holy and perfect, and he's had this plan since the beginning of time to redeem his creation by sending himself. And it hurts my brain. So we're going to dive into it and figure out, like, how is this even possible? But John 1 tells us these four things that are very important. The Word was not created, as it says in John 1. It tells us that the Word created everything that was created. Everything that we see, and then Paul tells us later, everything invisible and visible, whether thrones or powers, stuff we can't see, angels, everything was created by the Word. The Word created all things. And we can discern from this that the Word was not created because if something was created, the Word created it. And because we know this, we know that the Word is eternal. The Word is eternal, everlasting, was and is and is to come. That'll hurt your brain too. And the Word was with God and was God, the Alpha and the Omega. And all of this, it's very important for us to understand these doctrines, and it it goes, everything points back to the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, and that'll hurt my brain even worse. It is, God is three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one, perfect unity, perfect completeness, perfect submission, each one pointing to the other, uh, perfect community. It is the picture of what life is supposed to be is in the Trinity. And that, we have to really go back to that to understand uh, this doctrine of the incarnation. There's never any disunity and there never will be. So the word is eternal. Verse 14 tells us that God the Son is the word. God the Son is the word. He has always been, he is God, he was God, he will be God. The second person of the Trinity is the word, is the one who created all things. And then in verse 14, it again says that the Word became flesh. The Son of God, who is the Word, became flesh. Jesus of Nazareth was born in Luke chapter 2, and in the Bible it tells us that he was born incarnate in the flesh, truly God, truly man, meaning that all attributes of God are all attributes of the Son. And now we know that Jesus is truly God, but how? As I said, this is hard to comprehend. It is hard to grasp. And it is leaving us in awe and wanting to worship um, the Lord because of what this truth is. So now we're going to turn to Philippians 2 and we're going to read verses 5 through 8 and understand how what Scripture says about Jesus, what Jesus says about Jesus, uh, and why this is so important for us to understand this. So Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what Paul tells us here in Philippians 2, again, is that the Son created all things, The Son of God created all things. Jesus Christ was there uh, creating, holding all things together. And he was equal with God. And this is, if you take one thing away from today, we have to understand this about the incarnation. God the Son took on humanity without losing any deity. Took on humanity without losing any deity. That's the one thing we got to walk away with. It's very hard to comprehend, but we're going to dive into it some more. Um, 
took on humanity without any deity. J.I. Packer says this, he had not ceased to be God, he was no less God than before, but he had begun to be man. He was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made by his own taking manhood on himself. He did not cease to be God, he always was God. He took on humanity without losing any deity. In Colossians, Paul affirms this. He says in Colossians 1.19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Colossians 2.9 says, for the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. So that tells us that all the fullness, fullness means all, fullness means all, all the fullness of God was in Christ, was pleased to dwell in Christ, and it dwelt bodily in Christ, in his human form, all of it, not some of it, not 99% of it. There wasn't a mixture of 50-50 going on between Jesus being truly God and truly man. All of his deity dwelt bodily in Christ Jesus. But Philippians 2.7, if you're like me, makes me ask a question. It says, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Why does Paul use this word emptied himself? Because it makes me nervous about this. Um, and that's really important for us to understand because I'm going to point out um, some heresies that happened in the early church in the fourth and fifth centuries because I want us to look at it because their response to this really helps us understand how wondrous of a mystery the incarnation really is. But the best way I can think of this, and there's lots of debate and stuff, but where I land is this. If a king walks out of his throne room, if a king walks out of his palace and puts on normal street clothes and assumes the form of a servant among the people, there is glory that is left there because nobody knows he's the king. The glory that would have been if he's in his kingly robes, people are like, oh my goodness, it's the king. But in order for him to be a servant, to come and humble himself and take on our humanity, there was glory that was left behind, not deity, Zero deity was left behind. He did not empty himself of that, but there was an emptying of himself of glory. We even see this in the Old Testament. Moses was not allowed to look at God. He was allowed to look at the back of him somewhat, and it made his face shine. If we were to see the full glory of God, it would destroy us. So there was some sort of emptying of this deity that had to happen for Jesus to come here. And John Calvin, who is way smart, wrote this. The image of God shone forth in Christ in such a manner that he was nevertheless abased in outward appearance and brought to nothing in the estimation of men, for he bore the form of a servant and assumed our nature. I love that he writes the estimation of men. Jesus of Nazareth, as we know, no, most of the people didn't care. They would look at him and he, he was nothing to behold, scripture said. He was just a guy. Even the people in his own town are like, Who are you? like what are you talking about, Jesus? Aren't you the carpenter's son over here? In the estimation of men, he was not beheld as the son of God. There was glory that was left um, for him to come and make himself a servant. But this Philippians 2 passage has caused a lot of debate about the incarnation itself. So in the fourth and fifth century, I love church history, and so you get to love it with me today. Um, in the fourth and fifth century, there were two thoughts that were coming about. And this usually happens when finite man tries to understand infinite God, a lot of times when we do this and we use logic and we use reason and we use the scientific method, we come up with answers that make more sense than what Scripture says in our brain, 
but they're wrong. And this happened in the fourth and fifth century. One of the big ones, and these are taking, these are, they're making sense to people, so they're drawing people away from the truth and from what the church is teaching dogmatically at that time. The first one is this. Yeah, we believe that Jesus is God and man, but he has to be a mixture of the two. He can't be, if there's 100%, it's gotta be 50-50 or 60-40. And that was what they were teaching. And they were saying that he was some sort of mixture of the two. Yes, he was divine. Yes, he was man, but not fully each. He couldn't be. And that was the first heresy that was happening. The second one was this. We believe God or Jesus was fully God and fully man, but we, he can't be contained in one person. He can't be contained in one essence or one being. He had to have split personalities. Two personalities claiming this thing, fully God and fully man, but yeah, separate and fully God and fully man. And these were gaining traction because when we try to understand the wondrous mystery of this incarnation, people are just coming up with ways that it clicks in their brain, but it's not meant to. I am not God. But fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man. So this called for a council the smartest theologians and pastors and bishops and everyone in the early church got together at the Council of Chalcedon. And this is what they came up with. And I love, they use four words to describe the incarnation that are very important to help us understand how above me and how above us the incarnation is. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable or rational soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin. And if we skip down here, these are the words they use. To be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of nature's being by no means taken away by the unity. And it skips down to say, but one of the same son, the only begotten God, the word, the Lord Jesus Christ. R.C. Sproul wrote about this and made a great point, which made me even think about this is the incarnation is so far above us, which a a lot of things when, when reason or scientific method happens, sometimes you can't explain anything. So you just explain what it's not. The incarnation is so above us that they had to use negative words to just describe, well, it's not this. It's like when we use the word infinite. I am a finite being. God is infinite, which just means he's not finite. Like we can't really understand him. Like that's the best word we can come up with. He's not like me. He is infinite. And so when they use these words inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. What they're saying is they're setting these parameters, these guardrails for us, these four truths that state what the incarnation is not. It cannot be confused. There's no mixture of Jesus. There's no fully God and fully man. It's not 50-50. It's not a mixture. It's not confusing. It's not changeable. God doesn't change. Scripture says that. It's not divisible and it's not separable. It's inseparable. Separable? I don't know can't be separated. But outside of those parameters, you can pick your heresy. It's not true. And that's what the father said here. But the incarnation is such a wondrous mystery. We can really only say what it's not. But from this, we know that Jesus is truly God. Jesus is truly man. 100% God, 100% man. And we're going to look at now Jesus's works 
and what Jesus said about himself to prove that he was truly God. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, turn with me to that. This is my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Verse 15, it says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, as I've been thinking about the incarnation, thinking about God becoming a baby at Christmas. It is hard to comprehend, especially when we read verse 17. It's by him all things hold together. So my son CJ is 15 months old, one year and three months, and it is very fun. He talks in a language that he understands, and he walks and runs around a lot. He's smiling. He's so fun and very, very cute, and I am biased, but he's really cute. Me and Chrissy talked about that last night. It's like, even if we are biased, he's, he's cute. Um, and I love him. And I'm wrestling thinking about this. And a lot of times you learn a lot of theology by just sitting and, and pondering and wondering. Um, but one of the things we do right now that's very fun is he, um, we sit in his room. We'll close the door. It's baby-proof so he can't escape and can't hurt himself that we think. And I'll sit in the rocking chair over by the window on one side of the room. And across the room in the corner is his bookshelf that Chrissy made for him. And there's like 50 books that people have give, given him, all comprising of cardstock, and they're all only like five pages long, which is very funny to me. He goes through them very quickly. But what we'll do is I'll sit here, he will go over, and he will grab a book. Usually, I'm very impressed that he knows his favorite book. He'll grab it, it's red, it's like a slidey pop-up book that has cows and all kinds of creatures. So he'll grab that one. He'll usually make a mess because it's not on top and throw all the books on the ground. He'll grab that book, two hands. He'll start walking to me. And with every step, his arms get a little higher, a little higher. And by the time he gets to me, I know that that signal is, dad, pick me up, put me in your lap. I want to read this book with you. So I'll do it. I'll grab him. I'll put him on my lap. I'll turn him around and I'll help him flip the pages. Uh, and he'll look and we'll make cow sounds and we'll, we'll make any sound. He'll flip slow. He'll flip backwards. Sometimes he just closes it like we're done here. And then he does the slide motion and slides right off of me, takes his book, both hands, goes back, usually just tosses it halfway. We haven't learned cleanup yet. And then he'll get another book. And then he'll do the same thing. Two hands, walk up to me, dad, pick me up, let's read this book. And we'll do that about 50 times over the course of like an hour. And it's my favorite thing in the world to do right now. And he'll do it over and over and over again. And I'm sitting there looking at my son. I'm like, Jesus did stuff like this. Like as a baby, Jesus did stuff like this. Wanted to sit in his father's lap and learn. Learned to walk. Started talking and it didn't make any sense. Like God the son had to come as a baby, was born doing these things. But then you take it a step further and verse 17 says, Jesus did stuff like this as a 15 month old while holding the universe together. And that just hurts my head because I look at my son. I'm like, how does this work? But 
I want us to understand that when Jesus didn't lose any deity, he didn't take a 33-year break of holding the universe together. Always, while he was in Mary's womb, he's holding the universe together. God the Son, the eternal, all-powerful, all the attributes of God, holding the world together as a baby. And that's fantastic to think about. And that is really opening my eyes, and I learned that from just watching my son bring me books a hundred times. And it's my favorite thing in the world to do. And I've learned so much about God just from being a dad and seeing my son do things. And it just makes, uh, I'm so blessed. And God is so faithful to show us these things. But not only does he hold the universe together, he did things on earth to prove his divinity. Jesus's first miracle in John was he turned water into wine, which proved that he had power over matter. He could turn one thing into another thing. And he proved that. My favorite, most peculiar thing in the Bible is in Matthew 17. Jesus and Peter are confronted and they're asked, hey, are you guys gonna pay your temple tax? And Jesus is like, well, the sons usually don't have to pay this, but so that we don't uh, offend these guys, this is what he says to Peter. So we don't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a fish hook and take the first fish that you catch. When you open its mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and you. Now that just proves Jesus is God. Like he knew that there would be a coin that's floating in the water that a fish would swallow the coin, but not swallow it the whole way and just leave it in its mouth. Peter would catch it. He's sovereign over fish. He's sovereign over time. He knows all things. Jesus is God. He walks on water, proving that he has power over nature. He tells a storm to stop with just his words. The centurion comes up to him and says, hey, Jesus, my servant whom I love is dying and I know you can save him. So I need you to come with me. And through that conversation, Jesus and the centurion are talking and Jesus said, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. I'm gonna heal him right now. And we're told that his servant was healed immediately. Jesus never touched the servant. Jesus never saw the servant. Jesus was never in the proximity of the servant, proving that Jesus is divine and has all power and doesn't need to be near anyone to heal them and has power over sickness. He raises Lazarus from the dead, proving that he is sovereign over death. In the beginning of Mark, he says to this young man who can't walk, hey, your sins are forgiven, and also get up and walk, proving that only God has the power to forgive sins, and Jesus is over here claiming, I I just forgave that man's sins, claiming to be God. In John 4, my favorite is with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus and her are talking, and He tells her everything that she's ever done, her past, how the man she's with is not her husband and she's had four other husbands before that. And later she goes on and tells everyone in the town, come see this man. He told me everything I ever did. He told me everything. They had never met. They'd never talked before. And Jesus knew all things in this moment. And he knew and told her that he was the Messiah. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who's called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. So that's the next point. Jesus showed us that he was divine, that he was God, the son incarnate through his works, but he also told us that he was God. Jesus told us that he was God here. He's called the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the father except through me. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And multiple times when Jesus claimed to be God without actually saying, I am God, the religious leaders tried to kill him. One time he said, just as Abraham was, I am. They did not like that. 
and they picked up stones and they tried to kill him immediately. And then it got worse in John chapter 10, verse 30. He says, I and the Father are one. And they really didn't like that one. Verse 31 says they tried to pick up stones and tried to kill him immediately, but he slipped away from their grasp. Jesus was truly God, truly man. He told us that he was God and in him is no deceit at all. He is all truth and he's speaking to us so that we know this. But now what are the implications of this? This is, why is it so important that Jesus be fully God and what should our response be to this? And the main one is I can truly know God. I can truly know God. You can truly know God. We can truly know God. Hebrews 1, turn with me there. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. I, I love that. Paul says it several times in the other scriptures we read, but here, Christ is the radiance of God's glory. Christ is the exact expression of God. So Jesus' teaching is God's teaching. Jesus' compassion is God's compassion. Jesus' love is God's love. Jesus' actions, his demeanor, his character are God's demeanor. He is the exact expression. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the glory. So when we look at Christ, he's the perfect revelation of God because he's God the Son. He is God. And what's so important about this that really clicked for me this week and made the gospel all the sweeter if it ever could be is that God has revealed himself to us perfectly. We have it through his word, through creation, but through the Son, revealed himself to us, which tells me that God wants me to know him. If he revealed himself, that means God is inviting us, hey, like, I want you to know me, which also proves to me that God wants to know me. Why would he reveal himself to me for me to get to know him if he did not care about who's getting to know him? It's letting us know that God wants a relationship with us and he made a way for it to happen. And that lets us know that redemption is available to us. Redemption is available to us. Not only can we know God, but he wants to redeem us. Back to Colossians 1.20, it says this, and through him, Jesus, to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So we're told that God revealed himself to reconcile creation back to himself. And reconciliation was required because we have a sin problem. I have a sin problem. Confession, I have a sin problem. You have a sin problem. We all have a sin problem. We're told that everyone has sinned. Verse Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions. So sin is opposed to God. God is holy. God is perfect. God is righteous. Everything that is not that is opposed to God because it is sinful. And Paul uses some harsh language and says, sin is evil. Sin is evil actions. We'll never truly comprehend how detestable our sin is to God, how evil it is. But sin, more importantly, caused us to be alienated from our creator. Alienation because of this sin problem. And the beauty of the gospel that clicked more for me this week than ever in my life was that we're told that God the Son created all things. God the Son, the Word. God created all things through him 
and in him was not anything made that was made. So God the Son is the creator, and then sin happens, causing me to be alienated from this creator, alienated and doing evil deeds. In order to be reconciled back to my creator, there had to be a payment for that. And you know who paid it? The creator, God the Son. God the Son is the one who came and said, oh, there's this sin chasm, I'm gonna deal with it. In his justice, he came and gave us this ability, this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the creator came. God could have sent an angel, he could have made up another way for it to happen, but God the Son came. And that's so important, that's the most important part of the incarnation, that if Jesus is not fully God, salvation doesn't work. He has to be fully God. If Jesus was 99% God, then 99% of us might be okay, but that's not the truth of the gospel. Jesus is fully God. Only a infinite God, only an infinite son of God could atone for every sinner who's ever lived. Only an infinite God could become the propitiation to appease the wrath of God for all the sins that have happened. Only an infinite Jesus Christ could absorb all of this and die in his physical body without being annihilated. Only Jesus could absorb that. And that's the good news because when I deal with like, man, I sinned again, I did it again. I, I hope this, like, Jesus, I hope you forgive me. But because he's infinite, dying for all the finite people and all the sins that have ever been, we don't have to worry about it because it's sufficient. Because he's fully God, it is sufficient. Salvation is sufficient for all of us. It's not lacking. We shouldn't have to doubt. We should look at it and praise the Lord that we are sealed. Colossians 1.22 says this, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. This infinite God, the son who died a physical death, he bled out and suffocated on the cross physically. And we're told we can't even comprehend the, the torment that his soul went under like when he's trying to explain it to the, the disciples in the garden of what he's feeling, this weight of the wrath of God coming upon him and dealing with all the sin, becoming sin for me and dying that, but he had to be infinite to take it. And that's the beauty of this. But not only are we reconciled to a right relationship, it gets better. Not only are me and God good now, I'm presented as holy and faultless and blameless before him. That's incredible. So why do I doubt like that God loves me or if, like, if I've done enough for him now that I'm in Christ or if I sin again, like are you gonna forgive me one more time for this thing I did again? Well, he sees me as holy and faultless and blameless before him because Jesus is infinite, because he paid the full penalty infinitely on the cross, I don't have to worry about this anymore. But what should it lead me to do now that I know this? My only response is I have to worship Jesus Christ with all of my being, all of it. And that's my prayer and I'm preaching to myself right now as I've been going through this and reading Psalm 119, it's with my whole heart, I seek you. And I'm the first one to confess it's not happening all the time with my full heart. But this is our only response. We're, we're, we're created to worship and to glorify God. So what should the incarnation do? What should Christmas do? Praise God. It doesn't make sense. My brain can't even compute this. God is so good. His love is so magnificent. He is so above. All we can do is worship him. 
And just as Jesus was fully God and took on human flesh, but he was fully him, all the fullness of God, how can I respond by anything less than all of me being completely surrendered and serving him? Because I'm the first one to confess that that's me. I'm very good at trying to preserve me and you know, do a little bit less or whatever that needs to be. But if this is true, what am I doing? And that's where I want us to leave us today. We have to worship. And it's appropriate to worship Jesus because he is God. And I want us to know that too. That's how Hebrews 1, 3 ends. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. As if you were still doubting, Jesus would not sit down if he was not done. It's done. He sat down. It's finished. He's an infinite God, which means he covered all of it and we don't have to even think about it anymore. But that's what he is. Jesus at the right hand of the Father in heaven. God the Son took on human flesh and came to earth, lived a perfect life, died for our sins, for my sins, and rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's the good news of the gospel. I want to invite everyone to bow their heads. I'm assuming there's two people in this room. The one, if there's anyone here who would say, I I need a savior. I know that I'm in my sins, alienated from this God And I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and I need a savior. Is anyone in here who says, I need a relationship with Jesus, I need a savior? Is there anyone like that today? Amen. Well, I want you to know that the altar will be open. I'll be down here. Pastor Dustin will be down here. And we would love to talk with you, pray with you, answer any questions you have because it's the greatest news that's ever been. So Christians in here today, if you're like me, struggling with this, if Christ was humble, a servant, obedient, before, during, and after his death on the cross, how can we be so prideful and think that we can offer less or offer some of me? So my, my question to you is, is there an area of your life, is there an area of your mind, your body, your actions, your calendar, anything that you are not fully surrendering to Jesus, your savior. Is there anyone like that who would say there's something like that in me right now? Amen. Yeah. Well, I wanna invite everyone to stand with me. We're gonna open the altar and we're gonna sing in a minute a song that just points us to Jesus. Um, But I wanna invite anyone, for those who said they wanna know Jesus to come down uh, and talk with us and we wanna pray with you. But I think it's important, you don't have to, but if there's something that you say, I need to surrender to the Lord today, coming down to the altar, I, I feel like a physical act is important. It, it, it helps, especially when I'm confessing sin to the Lord. But whatever that might be, I wanna invite you to come down and surrender that so that we can serve the Lord with everything that we have. With our whole heart, we seek him, not some. And I wanna invite you to do that, but let me pray first. Lord, I pray for... I pray for us, Lord, that you would soften our hearts. Holy Spirit, convict. Convict us of sin and help us to be in right standing with you, Lord, so that we can be ready to obey and to serve and to proclaim the good news that you've given us. We thank you for your word, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. The altar is open and we're gonna sing this song.